Access Division 33, the official podcast of Division 33 of the American Psychological Association, a group of professionals dedicated to science and practice in the area of intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism spectrum disorder. In each episode, we'll speak with a different member of our division, discussing their work and why it's important to the lives of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and those who support them. Hello, and welcome to Access Division 33. I'm Laurel Benjamin, a member of Division 33 and your host for today. Today, we'll be talking about remote support services with Dr. Mark Tasse. Dr. Tasse is a professor in the Department of Psychology and the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at The Ohio State University and is the director of The Ohio State Nisonger Center, a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities. Dr. Tasse has over 30 years of experience conducting research and providing clinical services in the field of intellectual disability, autism spectrum disorder, and related neurodevelopmental disorders, with a recent focus on the effects of remote support services and technologies in promoting personal autonomy and independence in community living for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Welcome, Dr. Tasse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laurel. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So much of your recent work has focused on increasing the use of remote support services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. My first question for you is, what are remote support services and why might they be particularly important for this population? Well, so remote support services is really a broad array of services uh, that are offered in most states. And in many states, they are what we call a waiver service. And so they include technologies that um, allow the remote uh, support, the remote delivery of um, caregiver uh, assistance in the form of uh, a person uh, in real time through a video uh, communication so that a person can um, call uh, a support staff or a caregiver and get help or assistance or feedback. But it can also include smart technologies, remote uh, sensors, uh, devices, uh, safety devices in the home, video doorbells, digital locks, all of that sort of integrated. So it sounds like your team has done a lot of work to test and implement some of these at-home remote support services, particularly with the goal of enhancing independent living in this population. Can you tell me a little bit about your current intervention study and what you're hoping to examine? Yes, so we, we see these, um, these new technology solutions as really interesting forms of support where for most people, a lot of these technologies just make life easy or make life um, simple. But for people with disabilities, like developmental disabilities, it really makes independent living possible for many of them. And so we've looked at how these um, remote supports and technologies can support people with developmental disabilities in four broad areas. One is around personal autonomy. So it helps them be more independent in the home. Uh, We could, we see that through the use of tablets, smart devices, personal assistance, which can be used as uh, prompts, reminders. Uh, It could also give them verbal guidance or uh, support for tasks. Um, The other area is around health. So these technologies can support around health promotion, 
um, in terms of automated medication dispensers, wearable sensors that can alert if there's a health concern around blood glucose or uh, blood pressure or anxiety. Uh, there's also other health monitors that help detect fall detection in the home and can alert a caregiver. Uh, the other areas around safety, so home safety. So we, we think of things like sensors that monitor doors and windows, uh, safety devices around appliances that can turn off a stove or an oven if it's forgotten, water detection systems that could shut off water in the case of a flood or a sink overflowing. And the last one is really this remote support, which are these two-way video uh, technologies that can allow immediate real-time access to a caregiver. It could be a family member, it could be a parent, or it could be a paid staff. That's awesome. So are you looking at all four of these kinds of support services or mainly just that fourth one? Yeah, no, all of them. So all of them. And so we have this grant, we have a field initiated project grant from the National Institute on Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, which is, um, which is a three-year project where we're looking at the outcomes. So what are the outcomes? Um, are there improved outcomes around independence, autonomy, quality of life, for a group of individuals, we're looking at 100 adults living in the community who use these remote support services and technologies, and we're comparing them to a comparable group of adults who live in the, the community uh, without these technologies, but getting the same type of waiver services and the same type of level of care. Awesome. So I know that the study is very much in its early stages, but can you tell us any preliminary findings or anything you've learned so far in conducting this work? Yeah, so one of the fascinating things is leading up to this uh, grant uh, study, we had done a number of focus groups with individuals with lived experience and family members of two groups of people, those who uh, were not using these remote technologies and supports and those who were using. And we were just curious into uh, meeting them in focus groups and finding out what their experiences were. And for those who were not accessing these supports, why? You know, if they were available as they are here in Ohio. <clears throat> and what we found is that parents um, were reluctant to um, uh, encourage the use of technology supports for two reasons. One was safety concerns and the other one was privacy concerns. And when we ask adults with lived experience what their hesitation was to using more of these technology supports, uh, they had two reasons. And one of them was they enjoyed the interaction with their staff in person, and they were afraid that they would miss that. And the other one was a, a fear of technology malfunction. So what, what happens if the power goes out, you know, and, and this and that. And then we did focus groups with um, individuals with lived experience who were using these technologies for at least a year and their families. And interestingly, the parents, what they liked the most about these technologies were safety and privacy, which were what were their main concerns in avoiding them. But in, in the end, those who had experience with that realized that these technologies gave more of a sense of uh, safety and connectedness as well, because they were uh, you know, kept. They either received text messages if they wanted or, or calls. 
uh, and they felt that there was actually greater privacy because their sons and daughters actually um, got to spend a little bit more time alone, right, without necessarily always having the presence of staff. Staff are important, and when they're needed, they were there, but when the technology could meet a need, um, they enjoyed that because there was a sense of privacy. And, and the adults with lived experience, the two things they liked, one, they said safety. They felt a lot safer in their home, their apartment, with these technologies, knowing that uh, there was some um, uh, kind of person in the background watching or listening. Nobody was watching or listening unless they called them, but they felt that they were always there. Uh, and the other thing that they liked, the second thing, interestingly, was their interaction and relationship with the remote staff. Because when they called the staff, it was often the same staff, generally speaking, who was available. And they, in the end, their relationship with the staff was uh, virtually uh, unchanged. It, obviously, it was qualitatively different, but they still got a lot of interaction with uh, human contact, and that's what they liked. So we're, we're in the study now, we're rolling out recruitment and we're looking uh, to see if in our actual survey data and interviews of this cohort that we will be following, if a lot of those findings will be replicated. So we're really curious to see that. Yeah, it's great to hear that kind of those concerns were mitigated and, and that those ended up being the things that they liked the most. And I'm really curious to see if, if that's reflected in, in the more quantitative data which I hope we'll see coming soon. Two years. Two years. Okay. Stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> My final question for you is based on your work, uh, what recommendations do you have for families or providers of individuals with IDD who might benefit from these support services? You know, I, I think um, these technologies are not the panacea. So they're not the answer to everyone uh, support needs, but we, we've, we're realizing that there are a lot of people who, a lot more people could benefit from accessing these types of technology solutions to enhance their independence in the home, in the community, at work, at school. Um, and often they're not gaining access to these technologies, mainly out of um, a lack of knowledge, a lack of comfort, either for the individual, him or herself, their families, their support brokers or case managers. So I think one of the things that we're uh, trying to do more is educate people, um, inform them of the availability of these resources, uh, these technologies, which are fairly uh, um, easy to access, they're simple to use, and they're fairly affordable. They're not all that expensive. These are not high-tech, ultra-specialized technologies. Um, and in our field of uh, service delivery, we often have a tendency of wanting to, I use quotations, uh, staff a solution or staff a problem, when in fact a lot of technologies um, can help achieve our goals uh, of independence and autonomy, uh, especially in, in a context where the, the workforce crisis that we're, we're experiencing, have been experiencing, and where some of these technologies may not be the answer to all our workforce uh, uh, limitations, but maybe a part of that solution and help reduce the strain on the available workforce that we do have to support people with uh, disabilities. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and thank you for doing this work. It sounds like this is going to create a lot of like access to really important support services for individuals with IDD. Well, thank you, Laurel. Thank you for uh, having us on the show. Please tune into our next episode when we interview another leader in the field of IDD and ASD research. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please visit our Division 33 website at www.division33.org and use our contact page with the subject line podcast. To all those professionals working in the field, thank you for the work you do. And to those individuals with IDD and ASD and those who support them, we're here to help.